Hi, I'm Liz Winstead. I'm Mojiella Wodeal. And we're the hosts of Feminist Buzzkills, the only weekly podcast that helps you navigate the post-row hellscape. We dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with our guests, the abortion providers and activists working on the ground. Plus, we have amazing comedians to help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills drops Fridays wherever you get your pod fix. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. So, Asha, does the 14th Amendment really disqualify Donald Trump from running for president again? <sighs> it's complicated. I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal contributor for ABC News. And I'm Renata Miriati. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. So, Renato, there's been a lot of scuttlebutt in the last week or two about Trump being disqualified from holding office and effectively from basically being able to be on the ballot due to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And just for our listeners, I will read out that provision. So Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, disqualification from holding office. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each House, remove such disability. So that's the 14th, that's Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which basically says if you rebelled or insurrected um, or helped people, uh, then you can't hold public office. And this was passed after the Civil War, obviously keeping in mind that, you know, there were people who tried to um, levy war against the United States to cede. So the argument, I think, the, the issue has been with that clause, whether it's self-executing, which means does it standing alone create a disqualification bar or does something else have to happen? Like, do you need to petition a court and get like, I guess, a writ of mandamus or does Congress need to declare something? Um, and I think the latest from uh, constitutional law professor Larry Tribe and uh, Judge Michael Ludig, um, who's been an outspoken, uh, you know, critic of January 6th, uh, is that it is self-executing. And I believe that their argument is that just like 
you know, the qualifications for president are laid out in terms of, you know, age, et cetera, um, that this adds to that, the, the requirements. And I think essentially that any state can just choose based on what we know about Trump to just keep him off the ballot. Yeah, I mean, I think there are other issues even beyond that, Asha. I agree with everything you said. Um, uh, you know, but I think separate from that, I mean, there's also the issue, I suppose, did Trump, does Trump actually meet those or not meet that, that qualification, right? Is there, I mean, I think there's an argument that he could make that he didn't. Um, and then what is it, let's just say it's, if self, you know, if it's not self-executing, then what would, what needs to be done, right? In other words, can you go to a court or do you need legislation passed by Congress, which of course would not happen. So uh, I guess I, I will just tell you my um, initial reaction to this. I like, I, you know, two very intelligent people. I like Judge Ludic very much. And if, you know, I met him in person and, and had some good, I've had a lot of correspondence with him. I think, the, I think he, you know, he had perhaps the most important legal representation of our lifetimes in representing Mike Pence. Um, so impressive guy. Um, that said, um, I, I viewed this as sort of like an intellectual exercise and a thought piece more than something that was very, very practical. Um, at the end of the day, I mean, no one's done anything like this. Okay. No one's ever knocked somebody off the ballot. I mean, this was an amendment that was created around this time of the civil war, um, to keep the Confederates out, uh, from like to, taking over the, the, uh, United States government through, you know, lawful means, and so it is no, this never been used in modern times to prohibit anyone from doing anything, um, as far as I know. And, and I, I think the, the ultimately, no matter whether it's a state that's trying to do something or a court that makes some sort of ruling in a state, the bottom line is that this is going to make its way up to the United States Supreme Court. And I don't think there's any chance whatsoever that the United States Supreme Court, as currently constituted, is going to vote you know, you know, with we had five votes to disqualify Donald Trump for running for president. So I just think that this is sort of an interesting idea. Um, I'm kind of amazed at how much traction it's gotten. I will say I'm also amazed when I said something similar to this on the air, how all the nasty comments I got from people attacking me as if I was, I was myself the deciding vote in the Supreme Court, uh, other than just reporting the reality of, of the world we live in. Um, but I think that that's sort of my bottom line for this topic. Yeah. And I think you basically hit on what's the problem. How do we know if Trump meets the criteria? And, you know, I mean, we can do like the, uh, you know, I know it when I see it type of thing, but that's not sure. going to always be the, the best way to go about it. Because unlike something like age, which is objective, or if you are a natural born citizen, that's like an objective fact. Um, it, you know, it either is or it isn't. And I, I mean, I guess it is a question of fact, whether you engage in insurrection or rebellion, but because it's not something that is necessarily documented in the way these other qualifications are, it does seem to me to create a possible, you know, problem in slippery slope if we are leaving it in the hands of individual secretaries of state to essentially make that determination. And I think what 
Tribe and Ludig say is that it really would just take, you know, one secretary of state to disqualify him and basically say, like, I think that he meet, he is barred based on this. And that it's more of like a strategic argument, I guess, that then it would no doubt be then appealed um, or, or litigated and then ultimately appealed to the Supreme Court. And then the Supreme Court would have to rule on that Um you know, as a, I guess, as a matter of fact in law, um, because, and I, I mean, I, I think as a practical matter, there has to be some uniformity in agreement on that question, because I know that like a year and a half ago or two years ago, another constitutional law scholar, uh, Bruce Ackerman, who we know well from Yale talked about, you know, the potential, nightmare scenario if you had people petitioning in, in, in individual states to keep Trump off the ballots. And let's say you did get like some sort of court order, man, a writ of mandamus or something like that, where Trump was adjudicated to be um, disqualified, but he's only disqualified in some states and he's not disqualified in others. So he therefore appears on the ballots in some states and he doesn't appear on the ballots in others. And then, you know, you're basically... Ackerman, who, of course, loves to, um, you know, hy hypothesize and, and, and think about constitutional crises, says we would then be thrust into another constitutional crisis, right? That is, like, basically fodder for, for civil war. So you, you do need this to be adjudicated in some uniform fashion, I think. So I, maybe as a strategic matter, that would certainly take the question to the top. Yeah, I mean, and I'll just I'll make a few comments here for our listeners so they can be better and more informed, you know, consumers of news and analysis on these subjects. Um, you know, look, we've been mentioning the names of various law professors. At one point in time, I wanted to be a law professor. Um, you know, we hear a lot of law professors right now commenting about Trump, and they have a lot of interesting things to say. But law professors typically haven't practiced law. And they're really they're, – this is what they're best at, like dreaming up really interesting intellectual scenarios. I think what Professor Ackman, he's he's, he's brilliant, man. Um, what he thought up was interesting. It could happen. This sort of argument that, that uh, Larry and uh, Judge Ludig came up with, also very brilliant, very interesting argument. But I view them more as like thought pieces. And the reason I say that is – that is a, I mean, maybe people, I mean, I, I understand now people are starting to take it seriously. It's a narrative. It's a narrative that, you know, hurts Trump or something along those lines. So it has an impact there. But one thing that folks have to understand is that there's a difference in our law between things that are done all the time and that are, are constantly like constitutional provisions that are constantly enforced, right? Like the, the equal protection clause has very specific meaning and courts have defined it and people bring lawsuits on a regular basis to try to enforce, um, you know, or invalidate a provision or, or, you know, enforce the equal protection clause or whatever versus some idea that somebody just dreamed up at Yale or Harvard Law School. It's really interesting, um, but like no courts ever ruled on it. And one comment I've got from people was like, well, how can the Supreme Court just decide this? They're ignoring the law. Well, ultimately, at the end of the day, somebody's got to figure out what the law is. And that ultimately, in this case, is the United States Supreme Court. Um, and, I, you know, when somebody has an idea about something that no one has ever thought of before, it's, it's interesting. But I will just say it lowers the probability 
that the that any court, particularly in this case, the United States Supreme Court is going to go along with that idea and make it a reality. Yeah. And I mean, at Tribe and Looney don't talk about this in their argument for the Atlantic. Um, they do cite to, I guess, a forthcoming law review article that maybe does talk about this. But what I think is really interesting, because I teach national security law and, you know, in my first class, we go over the national security provisions in Articles 1 and 2. And what's really interesting is that at least based on the way the powers are, you know, delegated to the president and Congress, the irony is that the determination of whether there has been an insurrection or rebellion appears to rest in the factual determination made by the president of the United States, right? So, um, yeah. like, Congress creates a procedure where the president can call forth the militia if, um, you know, there's an insurrection or rebellion. Um, there is the option to suspend habeas corpus if there's, you know, a instruction or rebellion. And though that question hasn't been settled exactly who has the power, it seems to be that, again, Congress can create a procedure, but ultimately the president, as Lincoln did, would kind of determine when the conditions are met. Um, the president can repel, you know, insurrections and, and rebellions and invasions. So, like, I think we're in a really crazy situation where it's like no one ever contemplated that the president himself would be the one engaging in the insurrection. And so we're kind of left in this like weird situation um, where, I, I don't know, where it's sort of like, well, who makes the determination? And I mean, I think, I, I just, I, I think it seems to me like obvious that he did, but I just feel like you would need that to be formalized in some way before you took the step of officially disqualifying him. Now, maybe the January 6th committee report serves that function. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, there is the, you know, and you pointed this out to me, Asha, there is a, a different section, Section 5, I believe, of the 14th Amendment that gives Congress the authority to create legislation to enforce these provisions. I think this would have a better shot of going somewhere in the courts if Congress, both houses of Congress, which of course is not going to happen, passed a law saying, you know, the Insurrection Act, yada, yada, or whatever they want to call it, you know, defeating insurrection or something and defined it and said and set the bar and said this was an insurrection and we're deciding, right, that this that this is and we, you know, we authorize courts to prohibit anyone who participated in the insurrection or aided it in any way from, you know, from being on the ballot or holding office. But even there, I don't, I really have doubts that you know, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett and all them are going to uh, vote that that, you know, that that disqualifies Trump from office. But I think that would have a better shot. Um, I just don't I just don't see this realistically happening. I think it's an interesting idea. I personally do think that Donald Trump engaged in an insurrection. Um, but that's like a, my own personal opinion. And I don't let that get in, in the way of sort of me analyzing what's going to happen. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the Insurrection Act because we actually have an Insurrection Act, which, again, True. delegates power to the president to determine <laughs> when there has been an insurrection and when he can invoke the, you know, provisions there under. So, um, but 
Yeah, and you know, the only other kind of legislation, I, I don't want to say lonely, only, but I think the, the main one is um, the criminal provision, 18 U.S.C. 2383, which is rebellion and insurrection, which does have, if you're convicted of that, um, a prohibition from holding public office. So that seems to actually operationalize this constitutional provision. But of course, the bar is very high to charge and convict someone under that. And we can see that Jack Smith chose not to do that. Um, just because I like to mention this every now and then, you know, the Senate did have the opportunity to convict Trump in an impeachment proceeding of inciting insurrection. I think that would have been sufficient potentially to yes, I agree. disqualify him, yeah. even if the Senate did not themselves impose the additional penalty of uh, not holding public office in addition to removal. I think that the mere conviction and removal for that particular article of the impeachment could have sufficed. Um, but I just, you know, I worry about, I, I don't know, like, I just think we already have a problem with, like, potentially, like, rogue secretaries of state who decide to do whatever. It is like, do we really want to create a precedent where they can just keep people off the ballot, you know? Um, when people are, when we're in a era where, we know people are willing to weaponize the law uh, in their favor, you know, and we've seen this at the state level. Like, remember the the Tennessee three who were, you know, thrown out um, because of, of of some rule there. I mean, th these laws, you have to really think about how they will operate behind a veil of ignorance, right? Like, could you, how would this play if this was not, you know, if this was being weaponized against the candidate that you wanted? Are there any limits on it? What's the, what's the limiting principle, I guess? It's a very smart point. So one thing I just want to point out for everyone. So, you know, Asha, what you're really doing is you're making also policy arguments. Like even if we could press a button and, you know, Asha was the chief justice of the United States Supreme Court, hypothetically, um, or whatever, and this she could do what she wanted to do, ultimately, like, is this the right policy? You use the term veil of ignorance. That's something from philosophy, uh, John Rawls, where essentially you, you're ignorant as to who's on what side. In other words, take out of it the fact that we know this is about Trump. What if this is about random presidential candidate in the past or future? It could be Barack Obama. It could be whoever. You know what I mean? It could be Vivek. It could be anybody. Um, and the idea is what sort of role do we want to have? Yeah, I do think... I do think there's a lot of potential chaos and problems that could be caused here. You could have a situation where Trump's off the ballot in three states, four states, five states. He's completely destroyed by Biden, but nonetheless, the the right uses that as a talking point to say the election was illegitimate. Um, you know, do you even want that? I mean, there's a lot of interesting policy arguments. From my perspective, you know, this is all of more like a debate that I usually don't get involved in because I just view it as like, okay, it's 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 not going to happen anyway. Um, but it's interesting. Um, but I hope everyone can see, I think that's what part I think is the interesting thing about this discussion is you could see sort of sure the practical stuff, but I actually think the points you're making are important, Asha, because I think there's been a lot of runaway in, I would say, um, irrational exuberance <laughs> to use a, a phrase in the past about this, uh, idea. And I think you're bringing some needed realism to it. Yeah, I think we just want to think through the implications and 
I think that there may be some benefit to saying it isn't self-executing. You need some formal procedure or process. And I'm not saying he shouldn't be disqualified, but I just think I'm a big believer in process because process, you know, has the, you have the opportunity to weed out frivolous claims or disingenuous claims from ones that have merit. And I can see a situation where, yeah, you petition a court to declare this person disqualified. And, you know, if you get that, then let that go up to the Supreme Court or whatever. Um, I'm not very inclined to have secretaries of state or state officials just determine that somebody's not qualified to be on the ballot. It's even dangerous to have the United States Supreme Court knocking candidates off the ballot, right? I mean, we saw in Bush versus Gore how well, that how that went over, right? When the United States Supreme Court essentially decided the election. True, but at some point we that's that's the institution we have, and it is their job to say what the law is and to interpret the constitution. And it's sadly it's not populated by the people that we want. But I guess where you and I maybe differ is I, I don't think that that clause of the constitution should just never have effect right i agree I don't with think that. We just ignore it you know i'm just like i think we need to be more thoughtful about how we go about giving it effect i think that's right i guess my if it since we're in fantasy land because none of this is going to happen <laughs> in my fantasy land i would like to have a democratically elected group of people make that decision i mean to me ideally you'd have a bipartisan compromise where they're like, okay, this is post-Trump. Everyone gets together and like, okay, we don't want this happening again. We don't want a bunch of hooligans attacking our capital and threatening people and attacking people and hurting people. So this is what we're going to do. Here we're going to have a, a law that defines what insurrection is, you know, pursuant to Article 5. Here's what it is. Here's the procedure. Here's what you do and so on. And then that can be enforced by courts. I'd feel better about that rather than have the Supreme Court sort of divine what people said, you know, 100, you know, 50 years ago. no surprise that newsmakers try to manipulate the audience. They want you to believe that they are the one holding the line and they'll use any trick they can to get you there. But don't let them fool you. Get unspun. I'm Amanda Sturgill. I've been a reporter and today I teach future reporters to cut the spin and think critically about what newsmakers say. My podcast, Unspun, shows you how to know when you're being manipulated by the news. Learn to spot the tricks and how to make up your own mind about what's true. So if you're tired of being fooled by the news, subscribe to Unspun today. Unspun, because you deserve the truth. I'm Allison Gill. That's A.G. from Mueller, She Wrote in the Daily Beans, the premier podcaster for all things special counsel. And I'm Andrew McCabe, former acting director of the FBI and unlucky guy who was right in the middle of getting Robert Mueller appointed special counsel in 2017. And we're joining forces to document the investigations of Trump by the newly appointed special counsel Jack Smith as it happens. Whether it's analyzing court filings, letters, indictments, or prosecution and defense strategies. Or asking questions about special counsel regulations, rules governing classified documents at trial, or the scope of the probes. We'll be here first thing Sunday mornings to cover the latest breaking special counsel news and answer your questions with the assistance of some of the best experts out there. So follow, rate, and subscribe to Jack wherever you get your podcasts. Your only source for all things special counsel. 
So, Asha, I, I have to say one thing, the topic that's really fascinated me is the move that Mark Meadows made to try to get out of state court, get into federal court. Um, it's the sort of thing, you know, I think everyone saw last week, I kind of geeked out on as a as a litigator, uh, trial, a trial lawyer, what, you know, about all the various tactical moves. I'd say on paper, Meadows has the best legal team. And they managed, it looks like, to get him out of being indicted by Jack Smith. At least the reason I say that is he's conspicuously absent from the indictment, even as an unindicted co-conspirator. But they obviously they were unlucky uh, or they screwed up or they hit a brick wall in terms of Fonnie Willis in, in Georgia. It was like, nope, you're, you're, you're eating a felony here. Um, so they're, they have taken a kind of high-risk move to move out of federal court, state court. They filed a motion. And um, it's interesting because that required him being going on the stand, which bears some significant risks. But I think what I'll just say at, this, at the outset to get him get the ball rolling is there are some very important advantages for him to be in federal court versus state court. One of which is a very different jury pool instead of just Fulton County, which went 80 percent. I think for Biden or something like that, you have a much broader jury pool. That's pretty significant. Um, probably the most significant advantage. You're going to have a different set of judges who, even though, for example, this judge is appointed by President Obama, they're going to be less inclined to just go along with what the, the district attorney wants. But also, you're going to be away from all the riffraff, uh, the other defendants in the state case, who he probably wants to be kind of alone and have his own trial, which is going to be hard for him to get um, in the state case. Um, and there's a potential that, you know, I've heard the argument, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert in Georgia law, but it may limit the ability of Fannie Willis to supersede and add additional charges. So I think all of that, all of those sound like significant advantages to me. I don't know. Like, I'll push back a little bit because okay. I've been, I've been trying to pull, you know, our fellow lawyers and I'm like, what, like, what's the point? Um, because it turns out that that broader jury pool is not that much better in terms of their partisan leanings it's still predominantly democrat it's not like he's getting like some hugely conservative pool or something right. like that um you know it sounds like from what i understand there's actually a good chance that if his case is removed that a judge might have some or all of the other defendants also removed to federal court, I guess, in the interest of judicial efficiency. Um, so that the idea of, you know, the cheese stands alone or whatever is not going to um, work out for him, I guess, the way that it might for Ken Cheeseboro, um, who, side note, I think opposes Sidney Powell um, being tried with him. I think oh, understandably, that. right? Would you yeah, want to? Would you want to be in the same category no, as her? No, no, no. Anyway, that's a different. That's another topic. But, um, so I'm, you know, it seems to me that maybe some of the advantages here are, if they move into federal court, the federal rules of criminal procedure apply, even though it would be the substantive criminal law of Georgia. So still, they would be applying Georgia. State law, which, by the way, would still make it ineligible for a pardon because the mm -hmm. yeah. uh, for, for a presidential pardon, right. because the presidential pardon only applies to crimes against the United States. And this Correct. is not a crime against the United States. It would still be a crime against the state of Georgia. But I suppose and maybe you have a better litigators feel for this is that 
you know, Fonnie Willis would be in federal court, not not in her state court with, you know, the familiarity with the, you know, and I'm sure the rules are similar, but I bet they're different in important respects. And um, so she'd be a little bit off, you know, wouldn't have her home turf advantage, I guess. And it seems like the, the one thing that I feel there seems to be some consensus on is that he may get a better shake in federal court than in state court on his defense, which is that he's immune from state prosecution right. um, because he was engaging uh, in conduct that was under the color of his office. And so the idea, I guess, is to move into federal court and then file a motion to dismiss based on um, federal immunity. And this is under the supremacy clause of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And that maybe he'll get a fair shake. He could, from what I understand, I didn't realize this, he can actually raise that defense in state court too, I guess. Yeah, but it's never going to be granted. It's not going to be granted. Not, state yeah, state not judges granted. are not going to want to rule that they don't have the power to do what they want to do. So, so yeah. I just don't see the, like, beyond that, it doesn't, I didn't find, hear any super compelling argument. Okay, now I'm going to be provocative now. I shouldn't say you actually okay, helped convince me that you're, you, you convinced me that, that I was like coming, I was like, well, it's a calculated risk and I could see both sides of it. But now you've convinced me that Meadows is, was right because you've identified some additional points I hadn't considered. And on the ones that you see differently on, I don't think you're right on as some, from my perspective. So okay. here's what I would say. The jury pool thing, you're way underestimating the importance of that, in my okay. opinion. Okay. As a, as a litigator, so I, I, don't, I, have, I will just say I have not tried a criminal case in Georgia, but I've tried criminal cases in Chicago, LA, New York, and so forth. There's a huge difference so even if I was trying a case, let's say, in Chicago versus the Northern District of Illinois or something along those lines, there's a big difference because the suburbanites are a different crew that you're and there are a lot of the ones that are going to show up. So if you have, let's say, a city, like a city jury pool, it's going to be, and I think it's in Fulton County, Atlanta. Am I, am I right about this, Asha? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. You're going to get a, a more heavily minority jury pool. You're going to get a different... Um, economic class, whereas like the, if you pull in all these suburbs, you're going to get a lot of like white people from the suburbs who are upper middle class who may have a different view. They might, uh, they might see Meadows as one of them. There's a lot of biases that are going to come into play. And that's, I know that that seems like awful and icky, but that's often what trial lawyers and defense attorneys are playing off of. You're like trying to find like jurors who are inclined. So I think that's one thing I would say. And you know, your point about the home turf is such a key one because at least in the state court practices that I, or at times criminal cases I've handled, it's much more rough and tumble. The rules don't matter as much. Uh, like the judges let you do a lot more. And Fonnie Willis, you know, a lot of times, you know, I, when I was a prosecutor and I, a federal prosecutor, and I'd go up against these attorneys that did a lot of state court stuff, I would school them all the time with objections because they're not used to following certain rules. Um, I do think that's going to matter more than you might think. So I think his attorneys are just like, he's kind of in a bad spot here. He doesn't really want to be one of 19 defendants in this Rico case. And so it's not like he has a great choice, but it's like the better of the bad options, I think, to them. And do you agree that he'll, that there's a high chance of removal of the other defendants if he gets removed? Yes, because you have, well, at least some of them, because the ones that are asking for a super speedy trial, 
want a trial in like a month or whatever, two months. They're, they're not, I don't think the federal judge is going to want to take that on. So you're going to get rid of at least some of the riffraff, um, which that's great if you're, if you're, um, if you're Meadows, you, I think you want this, a trial where you're, if you're one of 19 names or they're just checking boxes, you, you have to be concerned if you're Meadows that like they get to person number 15 or 16, they're just like, whatever, like we're just checking guilty for everybody. So I don't know, like I, you really want as few people in your trial as possible. I think if you're Meadows. Do you think the fake electors could get removed also? I don't know. Or are we just talking Trump and some of the uh, Clark or whoever, you know, these, the, the Trump inner circle people? Yeah, I would say more of them. And that's a different kind of trial. It's got a different flavor to it. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, the, the attorneys, if they were in it, they have their own flavor, right? Like there had been a lot of finger pointing back and forth between the attorneys and the alleged clients or supposed clients. There'd be the fake electors. The jury's going to feel bad for some of them. They're going to be like, why did these people get, get caught up in this? It's because of that guy, Donald Trump or Mark Meadows or whatever. So I think having the fewer number of people in the trial is like always better because then yeah. the focus could be about you versus all of this, you know, comparative because um, Mark Meadows is high in the list of culpability, right? He was the White House chief of staff compared to some schlub who just agreed to sign their name on a form uh, saying that they were a fake elector. Yeah, and I guess one other thing to consider, which may not be the driving force behind the request, but will hugely benefit Meadows and anyone else who gets removed to federal court if they do, is that it won't be televised, Oh, yes, that's huge. The straight court proceedings will be televised. And, you know, to be able to have that, this is kind of my specialty. They have an information vacuum in a lot of ways where, Mm, you know, you're really going to have only the most politically engaged and diehard people who are really following the ins and outs of the trial because it's not going to be a spectacle for people to watch on TV or on social media. And I think it will give them a bigger opportunity to to spin it and to hide things. And, you know, especially when you have news outlets that, you know, their constituencies at least will be completely um, insulated from really knowing what's happening in a way that I think when it's tele, if it were televised, I think even Fox news would not be able to keep, you know, very, exciting moments like out of out of the airwaves that's my view such a good point that 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 is that that is so important that may be the driver of the whole thing because if this is so if this is televised which it looks like it's going to be all these trials are going to be televised i think this is going to make like remember how the johnny depp amber heard trial turned into like this social media circus where there's all these little clips on YouTube to make like Amber Heard look bad. There's all these stereotypes that got reinforced. It was was really crazy. This is going to be that on like steroids, right? I mean, there's going to be clips all over the place and memes and all sorts of stuff. And I think Meadows, if it's not televised, is going to, uh, in a very careful way, point fingers at Trump. Right, throw shade on Trump. Hey, this was, I don't know. You know, I was just following his orders, that sort of thing. Whereas, uh-huh. if he's televised, he's he's probably not going to be able to do that. Be, he's uh-huh. going to be much more careful about what he says because he knows that that's going to destroy his ability to make money and continue to get jobs in the Republican Party after this. He knows that there is a person who's going to be 
eating his hamburger with ketchup <laughs> and watching. I guess what I would say, what I would say is this about all of this. This is your, we're starting to understand the upsides because I will just say my view on this is Meta's got a really good legal team. And so if there's some, if we all, if we concluded on this podcast that like there was nothing to it, we're probably just missing something that they, that they know that we don't. So I do think that there's something to this. The downside, of course, he had to testify and there are some issues for him there. One point I just want to make on the podcast before we go and get to a more, more fun segment is that he's not going to be prosecuted for perjury um, be based on some statements that he made that may have, you know, you could argue are untruthful um, during that testimony. I understand some commentators, some, you know, very smart legal analysts have said that that is not going to happen. The chances of that happening are like, but very, the very judge low. can discount a lot of his claims based on that. Right. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. That happens all the time, by the way. You know, people lie in court like all the time. Okay. It's not, it, it just, it happens a lot. Um, it's not always charged. It's very, it's much harder to prove these case these perjury, you know, perjury charges than you might think, at least uh, on the internet, people seem to think non-lawyers think, but yes, it'll hurt him. The, I think the bigger issue, Ash, is he's boxed himself in on a number of issues. Like he's, he he's stuck with his testimony. And so mm-hmm. he's given a preview to the prosecutors of his what his testimony would be. To me, that's the a big downside. And he had it that was why this was not a, a, a slam, it would have been a slam dunk if he didn't have to take the stand. Might as well try. Um, but there's a very significant downside here. It's a very I would say a calculated risk, but a very significant risk. Well, I think it seems like he undermined his legal argument because one of the things he testified to is that one of the reasons or the main reason that he was engaging in this activity is because he was afraid that Trump would yell at him. Yes. So basically he's saying Trump was a bully and he was forcing me to, you know, engage in these shenanigans at the state level, which is an explicit violation of the Hatch Act. Yeah, um, that seems like the so that yeah, but that's so, that's the least of his problems. Hatch Act is like a civil violation. But but it affects but it no, I'm not saying that you'd be prosecuted for the Hatch Act. But what I'm pointing out is that if you are, you know, it's definitely Trump was trying to coerce or intimidate him, I guess, according to him. And then he is conceding that he's only doing it because Trump is coercing and intimidating him, which means that that wasn't his official duty. He didn't say I did it because that was my job. He said it because that was, and if it's not his job, that he's not acting under the color of his office. And that undermines his legal argument to get removed to federal court in the first place. That's what I'm trying to say. Right. I, I wasn't following yet, but now I get exactly what you're saying. Yes. And I think that was actually Willis's argument, which is well done about the, the Hatch Act. She made that argument. Um, I agree. I think there's a tension between trying to get trying to get this case removed and trying to win the the trial. And when there was a ten, and when those two things come into conflict, they went with trying to win the trial. Okay, they weren't going to have it. So I think the problem was, but the problem was, you know, the the prosecutors, of course, are going to push the buttons and try to put him in a spot where he has to make a tough choice. 
Like, are you going to answer this in a way that helps you get the case removed? Are you going to, and, but that'll screw you when we try the case? Like, so that, that I think was just smart questioning to put him in a position where he basically had to say that. Of course, he's going to say Trump b- bullied him or, you know, he wasn't in control. He's just like an automaton. That's how it always works, right? When somebody's committing crimes at the behest of others. I, I once convicted a lawyer and he was always like a freaking automaton. You know, his clients would tell him to do things, he'd just do them. And I usually, I use that as closing argument. It's like a robot. That's what he'd have you believe, ladies and gentlemen. It's like a robot, you know. Uh, and that's, that's what, of course, that's what, that's that, of course, that's the defense. But it's, it's a problem for him in terms of removal. You're right about that. It's no surprise that newsmakers try to manipulate the audience. They want you to believe that they are the one holding the line and they'll use any trick they can to get you there. But don't let them fool you. Get unspun. I'm Amanda Sturgill. I've been a reporter, and today I teach future reporters to cut the spin and think critically about what newsmakers say. My podcast, Unspun, shows you how to know when you're being manipulated by the news. Learn to spot the tricks and how to make up your own mind about what's true. So if you're tired of being fooled by the news, subscribe to Unspun today. Unspun because you deserve the truth. I'm Allison Gill. That's A.G. from Mueller She Wrote in the Daily Beans, the premier podcaster for all things special counsel. And I'm Andrew McCabe, former acting director of the FBI and unlucky guy who was right in the middle of getting Robert Mueller appointed special counsel in 2017. And we're joining forces to document the investigations of Trump by the newly appointed special counsel Jack Smith as it happens. Whether it's analyzing court filings, letters, indictments, or prosecution and defense strategies. Or asking questions about special counsel regulations, rules governing classified documents at trial, or the scope of the probes. We'll be here first thing Sunday mornings to cover the latest breaking special counsel news and answer your questions with the assistance of some of the best experts out there. So follow, rate, and subscribe to Jack wherever you get your podcasts. Your only source for all things special counsel. So Renato, before we go, um, you know, we're we're still a few weeks out, but we're approaching high candy season. And I I know that this can be very controversial on Twitter or X or whatever it is um, when people start talking about their favorite candy. So I thought that maybe we could really be provocative uh, on this week's podcast and talk about our favorite candies and what we hate. So here's the thing. I'm not going to be provocative because I have the right answer, which everyone else agrees with. Like I bet if you do a poll, everyone's going to agree that Reese's peanut butter cups are the best candy ever. And they're the number one most popular candy because they're freaking good. They're, they're better than the the fancy imitator uh, p- peanut butter cups, like the gourmet ones. They're amazing. Am, am I wrong? I like Reese's peanut butter cups. I personally feel that the ratio of peanut butter to cup is a little off. Like I would prefer more what? chocolate and less peanut butter to be honest. No, no, no. Yeah. No. It's just, it's too no, much peanut butter. Don't. Like you bite into the middle and it's like, no. like it's like your mouth is sticking no. together. And that's incorrect. I'll that's say incorrect. in terms of 
overall candy. I like I this is very old school, but I like Twix bars. Okay. I can do that. I could deal with that. I could do Twix. That's that's a legit Twix choice. Twix is a brilliant candy bar. It's in the top five. That's definitely in the top five. I'll give you that. That, that, that. But but the peanut butter Twix, not the caramel Twix. Caramel Twix. No, yeah. no. <laughs> I didn't Wrong. even know there was no, a peanut no, butter no. Twix. What? Uh, yeah, there's totally peanut butter Twix. Okay. What you and talking then, about, Willis? All right. Non-chocolate candy. Wait, okay. first, before we get off of chocolate candy. Um, Kit Kat. Milky Way and well, Mickey what Three Musketeers sucks, and Milky Agreed. Way sucks a little bit less, but it still sucks. They they both suck. Okay, agree. Like the whole nougat situation. It's just okay. Yeah, or something special. What were mm. you? What was your suggestion? Twix. Uh, Twix. What about Twix? Uh, uh, Kit Kat? Kit Kat. Kit Kat. Kit Kat is okay. legit. No, it's Kit like, Kat's like oh, that's that's a that's an honorable mention at it's least. An honorable, I mean, I, it's like it's um, it's not going to let you down. Okay, here here's something that to me is underrated, or it's over. I don't know if you see it overrated, underrated. I do like Hershey's uh, Hershey's Kisses. The chocolate is not that sweet, and that actually makes it better. Yeah, something about them, right? You can eat a ton of them. I was just about to say in small doses, so I would not eat a ton of them. Like if you okay. just need that little hit of chocolate, mm-hmm. and you find one in your purse, and you're like, okay, yeah, just pop it's this good. baby in, yeah. Yeah. And it, some of their um, new flavors of Hershey's Kisses, like they have like like the white chocolate or like it's like a birthday cake one or something or oh, peppermint okay, well, in Christmas time. They have like okay. different flavors. They might even, I don't know, they might be coming out with peanut butter Hershey Kiss. So I will keep your eye out okay, for that. Now that, that, might, that, might, that might be intriguing. That might intrigue me. I'm um, a big peanut butter person. Okay. Non-chocolate. What's your top? Because I know what mine is. Oh, really? Wow. I, I will tell you, I'm not a big Skittles person at all. Not a big, like, licorice person. I'm okay. trying to think. Swedish I fish. I love chocolate candy. What? Swedish fish. Oh. Uh, I'm not Swedish a big fan. fish. That's my go-to movie candy. What? Yeah. Oh Popcorn. my! I'll even have Reese's Pieces before I would get to what? get down to Swedish Fish. What? Reese's Why? Pieces. Swedish Fish it's... is so good. And if you get what? like the different colored ones, you can sandwich them, and you can do like lemon lime, or okay, yeah, orange I don't see it. Cherry. Uh, I I don't see it. Or lemon orange. Yeah. I mean, I used to like um, Jolly Ranchers when I was a kid. They're okay. They stick to I used teeth. to. They, yeah, they do stain your yes. They stick to your teeth, and they're kind of they the, yes. Um, I have jelly a very, bellies were were great when you're a kid, but they kind of you grow out of them. I have a very controversial chocolate one, which I don't okay. even know if it counts as a chocolate. Okay. Raisinets. Okay, they're okay. I love. Raisinets. I'll, I'll give you raisinets. I'll give you raisinets. Really. I'll Most give you a raisin. That, that, that's kinda good. Raisin. They've got a foot flavor to it. No, I like raisinets. Yeah. So you and I are okay, here's now one I hate is milk duds. That's gross. Milk okay, duds. Are milk gross. Dud, they're gross. I, I don't know how anyone ever ate those. They what were like a big deal mints? back in the day. What? Junior mints. Yeah, I'm not a big mint person. Junior mints to me, 
I mean, and I've, I've discovered this, you know, in the movies is like you get you get them and they seem like a good idea and you have like two of them and they're good. And yeah. then after that, you're like, I'm not eating this whole box. Yeah, that's exactly right. They're like if you're leaving a if you're leaving a um a restaurant, you can have like one junior mint and it'll, it'll like cleanse your palate or something. That's that's really what junior mint is meant for. It's not an actual candy to me. Okay, this is the make it or break it. Like this is like we may not even continue this podcast depending <laughs> on how you answer. Uh -oh. How do, you, how do you feel about candy corn? Oh, uh, okay. It's gross. It, it, so, and I know okay. that you're going to tell me it's the best thing. If somebody no, on Twitter no, no. thinks it's the best thing ever, there are it's, some it's disgusting. It's the best thing ever. It's yeah, it's disgusting. disgusting. It's disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. Yeah, it's gross. It's okay, like, good. actually, it's this filler garbage that you get in your, your Halloween thing. You're like, why is this here? Like, you just throw it away. It's like, it's, it's almost like the, Correct. um, it's like, it's like those little, um, things you get in the packaging like those little poofs which are great to you know they just you're you're throwing them out that's literally what i that's candy corn to me like you throw it in the trash it's yeah. that bad okay good we can still be friends now we can still have a podcast <laughs> <laughs>